You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. So in a week's time, Australia is going to stop and pause on the 26th of January. And the 26th of January for the country of Australia recognises the 1788 landing of the first fleet at Sydney Cove. Um, headed up by the naval officer Arthur Phillip, who became the first governor of New South Wales. And it's celebrated by the majority of people in our community around us uh, with uh, what's considered all things Australian. Uh, families getting together over the barbecue, going down to the beach, enjoying one another's company, maybe playing cricket, all those sorts of things that the Australian culture identifies with. And more recently, there's, uh, in the last 10 years or so, there's been an emerging, I guess, controversy to some extent about Australia Day and whether it should be celebrated on this particular day, as it doesn't necessarily signal to every Australian um, the positivity that, I guess, uh, in the past, Australians have celebrated this particular holiday with. And First Nations in particular are suggesting that it actually represents an invasion day um, of their culture and of their land. Um, and so therefore there's a, a sort of a, a conversation going on every time we have Australia Day emerge each year um, in the corridors of power and politics about how this day should actually be remembered. But nonetheless, for Australians generally, it's a pretty important day. One way or the other, depending on, as I said, where you're coming from, it is a, an important day and uh, it's marked by a public holiday. But there's actually a day immediately following, on the 27th of January, that United Nations, and therefore essentially the majority of nations in the world, have come together and agreed should be identified um, as a, a critical and important day on the world's calendar. And that is the 27th of January. And the 27th of January is to be marked this year as 77 years since the gates of hell were opened at Auschwitz, the greatest machine of human destruction history has ever known. On that day, 77 years ago, January the 27th, 1945, the Red Army, the Russian Army, came into Auschwitz and opened the gates of that concentration camp and released those few that were still alive. And the president of Israel, who was the president back in uh, 2020, um, uh, Ravin, stood up at the United Nations to remember this day. And what you see on the screen is what he opened his address with. The horror that the soldiers of the Red Army saw when they entered the camp was inconceivable. Corpses littered the grounds of the camp, thousands of sick and dying people, including children, half-naked skeletons, the living dead. One million, six hundred thousand people, nearly a million and a half of them Jews, exterminated at that camp. A very sobering um, and dreadful picture, isn't it, that is created uh, by President Ravin there at his opening address at the United Nations Assembly 
marking the 75th anniversary of the release of the uh, inmates at Auschwitz. So the United Nations have agreed back in 2005 at a resolution on the 1st of November that every member nation of the United Nations should honour the memory of Holocaust victims and encourage the development of educational programs about Holocaust history to help prevent future acts of genocide. And that that should be marked by all United Nation members every year on the 27th of January. The day should call for a preservation of Holocaust sites um, and should reject any denial or any person or nation or group of people choosing to deny the presence or existence of the Holocaust. Now, it was an initiative of the State of Israel, and it was presented by the Minister of Foreign Affairs on the 1st of November 20, uh, 2005, um, uh, uh, Foreign Affairs Minister Shalom, and it was presented to the United Nations Assembly, and it was voted in um, unanimously as a day to be remembered. And so today, it's considered that the 27th of January, on any given year, is to commemorate the International Holocaust Remembrance Day. Now, each year there is a theme that is selected by the United Nations, and this year um, it is uh, determined that the theme will be memory, dignity and justice. So that is the theme for the 27th of January this year, 2022. And there's usually a commentary that is associated with the theme. I've only given you a small portion of that commentary that is issued to United Nations members. And I guess the couple of things that I wanted to highlight in this commentary that has been issued for the Remembrance Day this year is that there is an intent through this theme to safeguard the historical record, remembering the victims, challenging the distortion of history often expressed in the contemporary anti-Semitism movements um, and the critical aspects of claiming justice after atrocity crimes. And the theme, memory, dignity and justice, encompasses these concerns and encourages action to challenge hatred, strengthen solidarity and champion compassion. Read into that inclusion. And so there is a broader attempt by the United Nations, not just to necessarily stop at a conversation around the impact of the Holocaust on the Jewish people, but to extrapolate that across cultures of all nations about how they manage essentially minority groups or disadvantaged groups in their various communities. This year being 77 years, so not a milestone anniversary by any means. We will look at a milestone anniversary a couple of years ago in uh, 2020 in a moment in some of the speeches that were given. But this year, um, if you're interested, um, there is to be a, uh, a number of presentations given um, at the United Nations Holocaust Memorial Ceremony that will mark the International Day. Uh, there will be an, a variety of in, invited speakers, including the United Nations Secretary-General. There will be testimonies from the Holocaust survivors, 
their families primarily, and a number of them now, obviously, those who did survive, reaching an age where uh, they are passing away. Uh, but their various families and representatives um, to be able to speak on their behalf. There will be memorial prayers and the ceremony will be live streamed worldwide. And you can go to this particular uh, place on the website, the United Nations Outreach Program on the Holocaust. You can type that in, um, you can Google that and you can then register and uh, tap into that live stream uh, for the assembly that is held on the 27th of January this year. And in that uh, dossier, I guess, that is issued to United Nations members, uh, there is always um, said to various politicians and, and leaders and, and organisations uh, across the world that there are things that they can encourage their citizens to do to remember this day. And this year, there's uh, three things there. You can visit a Holocaust museum, you can donate to a Holocaust museum, or you can help a Holocaust survivor. And particularly in America, in the US, that third point is a significant um, emphasis in various communities across America, the Jewish communities in America being significant. And a, and a lot of Jews um, uh, still um, for legacy from their family of uh, the, the Holocaust um, experiencing various degrees of poverty. Um, and so for those less fortunate Jewish people there uh, in the American communities, there is a strong emphasis on helping um, a Holocaust survivor um, in their old age um, or indeed maybe a, a close relative um, who may be disadvantaged in some way. So look out for that this year on the 27th of January. If you didn't know that that was a, a focal point for the United Nations, um, it is, and uh, day after Australia Day, um, uh, the world um, leaders and nations will consider uh, this particular event. So we're going to take a little bit of a journey uh, through history, a little bit of a snapshot using the, the slides as some presentation and some images. There are some images here that are a little bit disturbing. I'm sure most of us have seen images of the Holocaust before, but I don't think it would be um, appropriate for us not to um, uh, remind ourselves of the atrocities committed against the Jewish people by Nazi Germany um, without showing a, a couple of those images which we might be familiar with, but then again we may not. So I want to consider briefly how it all began, and we go back to um, the 1930s, essentially, and, and well, uh, prior to World War One, uh, World War II, uh, the, the interim period between the two world wars, um, when we had um, the rise of Nazism in Germany and Adolf Hitler coming to power. And the photograph you see on the screen is the day that he was announced as um, the leader um, of Nazi Germany. And you can see the adulation um, of the uh, German community around him and him touching the population. Uh, this was a, a, an incredible moment for the nation of Germany who had suffered immensely as a consequence of World War I and uh, the various uh, uh, regulations that were placed upon that nation uh, by largely uh, Great Britain and Great Britain's allies. And economically, Germany had suffered and this was seen as an opportunity for Germany to rise again and to become a power in Europe, if not the world. Now, some of us might not be familiar with 
the political spectrum and where Nazism fits in relation to that political spectrum. Some of us might be, some of us may not be. Now, this isn't going to be a lesson on, um, on politics, uh, but just to sort of uh, scratch the surface and understand where Nazism fits in the general scheme of things. This particular, um, uh, I guess, graphic suggests very, very high level where the varying um, thoughts and philosophies and ideologies sit on the scale of politics. And you can see in the centre there of that screen, um, I think this works, uh, this section here, and this is an American interpretation of politics, but nonetheless, um, in the centre of politics, um, there is sort of more what you call a moderate view. Now, we have the Democrats in American politics sitting here with a more liberal view, uh, uh, freedom, equality, fraternity, and a more conservative view represented in American politics by the Republicans. In Australia, you might say Labor Party, Liberal Party. Liberal Party sitting to the right, moderate right, and then the Labor Party, moderate or centre-left. You often heard that term, centre-left or centre-right. So in Australian politics, you could, you know, broadly speaking, replace that, those images with maybe Labor and Liberal. As you move to the right, um, you get more extreme views. Um, and they represented the, the monarch uh, view, you know, king, queen, country, that sort of idea as more conservative. But as you start to take significant leaps to the right, you start to get to the end of the spectrum uh, being fascism uh, manifested um, particularly in the modern era by the Nazi party. To the left, we move to socialism. You might have heard that term with uh, the Labor Party, particularly the far left of the Labor Party, various members of the Labor Party having socialist views. Uh, that's been some commentary of um, Dan there in Victoria from time to time. He is of the left of the Labor Party and there's often been um, uh, comments about his position on certain things and his philosophy being um, socialist in thinking. So we start to head to the left of the spectrum and we get down to communism. And what I've done here is just given you a little bit of a, a snapshot of the two extremes, if you like, the far right fascism and the far left being communism. So you get a bit of an idea about the difference here and where fascism or Nazism, as it uh, became labelled, um, sort of sits in terms of its general philosophies. So when we start talking fascism, fascism looks to past greatness to establish future glory. So things were better um, back then. Um, we look back in order to move to the future. We try to restore um, ideals and culture and views of the past. The, the, the philosophy accepts economic and social inequality. Now, this is a really important point. It says that some people are naturally better than others. And to go further, that they are naturally better than others based on their genetics. And so therefore there is a view about racial purity, that there are some races that are more dominant than others, better than others. So a natural makeup of our society is inequality. You can't escape it. That fascism has a view around the leader and the government, that the elite rule and the leader 
becomes almost a cult hero or saviour of the community by instilling these past values of greatness to once again rise the nation to moments of glory. There is a strong emphasis on investing in the military as a way of driving the economy. And there is a strong, passionate view about loyalty to the state over the individual. In other words, if, this, if the state objective happens to avoid or ignore the need of a particular individual or the need of a group of people within that community, that is to be sacrificed in order for the betterment of the state. That's the value position. The far left, slightly different, a complete rejection of economic traditions of the past. So they look to the future and the future only. They want to reorganise society and taking no reference point from the past. They abolish social class. They consider everybody is equal. The government controls all the wealth. The distribution of goods is based on individual needs and individual values and needs are recognised but considered the same which are serviced by the state. So yes, individuals are important, individual needs are important, but they're all considered equal. So my needs are equal to your needs. I need a house, uh, I need some income, I need food. So my needs are exactly equal to yours, and therefore those needs are to be provided by the state. So the philosophy is, yes, we put the individual first, and the state services the individual, but there's no class structure, so everybody is equal. So therefore, one size fits all, and the government can provide um, a single set of services, uh, and everybody is able to live appropriately as a consequence of that. So that just gives you a little bit of an idea, if you haven't considered before, where fascism sits in relation to maybe communism, there is um, significant differences. Probably where the similarities come is that the government controls the nation and the outcomes. And that is indeed a similar thing. So let's translate that to some key policies in relation to our topic tonight. Hitler had a racist worldview, so you heard that term, um, in the sort of description of fascism. That people could be separated into a hierarchy of different races where some were superior than others. The German race then was to be the superior race. And there were a number of other groups in society, in German society, that were considered to be inferior inclusive of the Jews. In September 35, the Nazis had taken power and they introduced three laws. The law concerning the German flag, the citizenship law, and probably the last one of most importance to our topic tonight, the law of the protection of German blood and German honour. You can see that language then, how it's being translated from those values of fascism that we've just looked at. So the laws, particularly that last one, was designed to derogate the basic rights of the Jews, such as the right to vote in political elections and prohibited marital relations between Jews and non-Jewish Germans. So this is coming from a value position, a very strong belief, a political position, that a race is above another. Just something as an aside, you might not have considered the swastika as the emblem chosen by Hitler to represent his party and to represent his nation. 
And it's just interesting, I think, that uh, just to consider a couple of things that are in red type on that screen as to what that swastika actually represented. It was actually an ancient geometrical symbol that was used by many cultures um, in the pagan world, um, and particularly in the area of Mesopotamia. So, you know, that northern area of the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. Interesting. In Christianity, the swastika was utilised. It was taken from that, those pagan roots and it was brought over into Christianity and it was used as a hooked version of the cross, the symbol of Christ's victory over death. Now, the word swastika is actually composed of two um, words. The first is good or well, well-being, uh, and the other is um, um, it is or there is. So when you put that together, you've got that in red type there. There is goodness or there is well-being. And if you take the Christian interpretation of the symbol about life, there is well-being, there is life, there is victory. So those words were associated with this symbol back in ancient Mesopotamia. It was also used, interestingly, by the Hindus and then converted into Christianity and used in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Hitler chose that to represent his values and his political belief and idolism. So the last statement there, as Hitler said himself, as National Socialists, the hook cross represents the mission of the struggle for the victory of the Aryan man. See how he sort of put that all together? Very clever. You know, there's a lesson in marketing that he's actually been able to put a brand to this and appeal to the German people who were oppressed, who were coming out of economic poverty. And he's able to put a brand to say it's okay. There is going to be goodness. There's going to be well-being. There's going to be life. Um, and this represents the supreme race's struggle over others. So what about this issue of the Jews? So saying all of that, where did this um, issue emerge in terms of the persecution of the Jewish people by this system or by fascism? Some of you will be familiar with this history, but on January the 20th, 1942, 15 senior Nazi officials met at what's commonly now referred to as the um, the 1C conference in Berlin, that's how history has recorded it, to discuss the implementation of the final solution. This was where Hitler's politics started to translate into action. This idea of a race being supreme to others, the struggle of the Aryan race. We need to do something about those who threaten our economic recovery. And it was seen very much that the Jews were part of that problem, that they had accumulated for themselves in Eastern Europe, primarily the wealth of Eastern Europe, and that that needed to change. SS General Reinhard Heydrich described a plan at that conference. He was given the job to walk in and make a presentation. And the presentation he gave was the ability, a system, if you like, to be able to ex uh, exterminate more than 11 million Jewish Europeans. By the end of the war, they got through half that number. So they gave it a pretty good shot. 
And if the war had continued, or Nazi Germany had have um, reigned supreme and won the war, then they would have well and truly reached that target. And again, the propaganda and the branding was very cleverly done. In schools, it was taught this uh, political philosophy and idealism was taught through uh, cartoons um, in a caricature in a children's storybook entitled The Poisonous Mushroom, published in 1938. The text read, the god of the Jews is money, portraying them as greedy and poisonous in line with those anti-Semitic ideals that we have seen in fascism. So there were um, artists and uh, writers employed to put together children's books to convey these sorts of philosophies. So the Holocaust itself, we, we know what happened. Um, we know the disaster experienced by the Jewish people. Um, and that by the end of the war, as we said, six million Jews had been exterminated by the Nazi regime. So between 41 and 45 were the periods of time primarily where um, these issues um, really emerged, uh, where the Nazis sought to eliminate the entire Jewish community according to that plan that was presented behind it. There were over 850 geckos, uh, ghettos, geckos, um, concentration camps, forced labour camps and extermination camps. And uh, the vision there um, just gives us only a minor um, understanding of what it must have been like to be in that situation. Now, there's a little bit on this slide, but just to focus for a moment on Auschwitz, because Auschwitz is the, I guess, the anchor, if you like, that uh, the United Nations has chosen as the means to remember what happened to the Jewish people in World War II. The, the release of the inmates at Auschwitz um, on the 27th of January 1945 is the um, benchmark, I guess, that the world has chosen to identify with on this particular day as saying we don't want this atrocity of any description like this to happen again. It was the largest of the Nazi death camps. It was opened in the spring of 1940, and it was on former military base in Poland. It was originally conceived as a concentration camp to be used as a detention centre for Polish citizens after Germany, you might recall, walked into Poland and annexed Poland almost without firing a shot. By mid-42, however, as a consequence of those presentation, that presentation made at the Wannsee Conference, it was converted to a death camp. And detainees were often, when they were brought into the camp, examined by Nazi doctors, those considered unfit for work. So many were put to work in the camp, um, including young children, um, the elderly, the pregnant women, the infirmed. Those who weren't able to work to full capacity were ordered to take showers, and we know they were disguised as gas chambers and they were exterminated. Others died from the very poor conditions that we saw on the previous slide in terms of the, just the general living conditions, uh, the lack of uh, uh, sanitary and hygiene, um, and, uh, and perished um, in, uh, during, uh, during their work activities. In addition to that, there were arbitrary executions. Um, Nazi officials would just choose to shoot people at will and at random. Um, there were tortures, there were retributions that happened on a daily basis. Now, I'm not sure how I might get Nick to maybe press uh, a button on the screen here, Nick. 
um, just if you can for me, because that it, this is a embedded file. It does. Um, if you can just uh, place a mouse there, I think it can work. Yep, there we go. There we go. So what you're seeing before you now is the process by which the various camps were uh, implemented. Dachau in Munich was the first camp that was put in place. Uh, again, they were largely labour camps or concentration camps. And then over time, as the war progressed, more and more um, camps were put in place. And those red circles that you saw emerging then demonstrate the numbers of people that were um, exterminated at those various camps. And I think if you, if you maybe caught it as the video moves through, you would have seen the circle emerging around Auschwitz in particular as being um, the largest um, um, camp utilised for uh, those exterminations. I have walked through Dachau, um, and while that wasn't um, quite the same as our switch, um, it certainly gives you um, a real sense of the horror and the trauma that would have occurred in these particular places. Just some images for us to remind us of the, uh, the reality of the situation. Again, the UN are doing this on the 27th of January to emphasise um, these things and to ensure that what did occur is not lost on future generations. You see some of the images there and probably the one of most, um, um, uh, I guess, injury or concern um, is that of uh, Ivan, Ivan Dugnik. Uh, he's 15 years old there on the, on the far right of screen and being rescued from Outswitch. You can just see the pain in that young boy's face, what he would have gone through. Um, you know, his parents uh, have either probably perished, um, who knows where he was able to recover his life um, as a consequence of what happened to him in that place. Um, and other images here, the, uh, again, this idealistic philosophy where the Jews have accumulated all the wealth, we need to take that wealth back. Uh, and it was part of that value system that Nazi Germany um, implemented through uh, these particular concentration camps to restore the supremacy of the German nation. So two years ago, on the 27th of January 2020, um, it was a milestone event that was held, the 75th anniversary of the release of the inmates at Auschwitz. Um, and it was entitled Auschwitz 75. And it was a massive event and it involved a lot of the world nations. And I think for all of us in the audience here tonight, this next photo is going to be really fascinating. Certainly when I saw this photo, I was, uh, I was absolutely fascinated by the way the world leaders had lined up and who was sitting next to who. And you might identify there's a particular person sitting between the president and the prime minister of Israel. And it's not Charlie from the UK. And I found that quite interesting, the way the dignitaries organise themselves. Now, interestingly enough, for the 75th anniversary, the man in the middle, probably, I might say, probably the sharpest tool in the shed when it comes to politicians right at this point in time, um, had deliberately positioned himself where you see him. Um, and secondly, he had somehow managed to muscle out Poland and make Poland look like the bad guys. 
In fact, Poland weren't invited to the celebrate uh, to, to the uh, to the anniversary. They weren't invited to the anniversary. The very country on whose ground Auschwitz took place, they were not invited. Putin had managed to organise and influence the way this event would be seen by the world. We have to run through these slides fairly quickly, but just want to take a couple of highlights from some of the speeches that were made at that event. I think it was really interesting. Charlie was the only one to mention the word of God. I find that interesting. That he chose to put into his speech a reference from the prophet Isaiah, that they will be a light unto the nations to guide the generations to follow. Almost starting to move to the position, maybe, that the Jews are God's witnesses. Didn't quite go there, but it's interesting the way he structured his speech. You can read through some of those lines there um, that he gave uh, in, in this uh, particular event. Of course, that speech was followed by none other. And it was really interesting that he um, deliberately led a campaign at this particular event to position Russia as the saviour of the Jews. That was the essence of his speech. That back in World War II, we were the ones that opened the gates in 1945. If you ever heard of a marketing campaign, here's another guy that's really good at it. And indeed, he wasn't lying. He was telling the truth, but he was leveraging the moment. And he was saying, we are the friends of the Jews and we saved the, not just the world from Nazism, but the Jews. Now, remember that spectrum of politics. We had communism at the far left and we had fascism at the far right. And if there was anybody that the communists hated, it was the fascists. So there was other motives for Russia to be involved in that Second World War against Germany. Political, ideolo ideological motives. But here, Putin used the opportunity to say, we led a campaign back then, and he ignored the fact that very early on, there was a pre-war pact between the Nazis and the Soviet Union. And he completely and quite deliberately, of course, ignored that particular issue because it was very soon, once the fascists showed their true colours, that the Soviet Union quickly pulled back and united with Britain in their fight against the fascists. Uh, of course, the Pope had to uh, appear. Um, if we lose our memory, we destroy our future. May the anniversary of the unspeakable cruelty that happened 75 years ago serve as a summons to pause, be still and to remember. We need to do this lest we become indifferent. And interestingly enough, Saudi Arabia, through uh, Mohammed Alisa, head of the Mecca-based Muslim World League, he actually went to Auschwitz. Saudi Arabia, now Iran, and uh, the Palestinians, in their commentary, and we don't have time to look at it tonight, um, actually sort of tried to walk a very fine line to say, well, you know, yes, events happened in World War II, we don't want those events to happen again, but we're not sure about the validity of the Holocaust. So they sort of walked a line, but here's Saudi Arabia, through this cleric, 
um, actually went to the step of going to Auschwitz on that anniversary, the 27th of January 2020. I believe that by paying my respects, he said to the victims of Auschwitz, I will encourage Muslims and non-Muslims to embrace mutual respect, understanding and diversity. So just in this event, there were very interesting political and geopolitical manoeuvres being made that for most of us here in the room tonight, will be able to relate to prophecies like Ezekiel 38 as to how the nations are positioning themselves in this modern day around the nation of Israel. And there was one person that you, 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 know, you only had you know, to be human, um, had compassion for on this particular occasion. And it was Merkel, the Chancellor of Germany. Um, and I think what she says there on the screen is quite genuine. Um, she was uh, absolutely distraught in visiting Auschwitz um, on the 75th anniversary. Um, and while her nation in the future, according to Ezekiel 38, will uh, align uh, more against the Jews, I think um, her position on this occasion uh, was nothing short of um, you know, remorse for what her nation had done to the Jewish people. So why the Holocaust? Let's take ourselves through a quick journey in the few minutes we've got left. I'm going to have to be relatively quick. Um, and just let's uh, reflect on why this event. Because it's one thing to remember it happened. It's another to ask why. And I guess that's probably the bit that's missing when the world comes together on the 27th of January. Yes, they remember the event, but maybe it's a little bit too hard to ask why it happened. Well, in 1939, there were um, 9.5 million Jews in Europe. By the end of the war, there was about 1.4. It was over 57% of the world's Jewish population living in Europe. By the end of the war, it was 10%, and that would continue to decline. You can see the graph there on the right of screen. Prior to the Holocaust, Life was good for the average Jew in Europe. The largest populations, 3 million in Poland, 2.5 in Russia, and 980,000 in Romania. There was a lot of people in that sort of Eastern Bloc who were of Jewish descent, and life was good. Going back some years before, in 1919, we know of the Balfour, or 1917, we know of the Balfour Declaration. And that was where the British government, for the first time, stood up or came together and announced that they saw the land of Palestine as the future home for the Jews. But it would take another war before that would be fully enacted before the State of Israel would be declared in 1948. And to the onlooker, we might say, well, we've got the momentum here of a major player in world politics, Britain, who's saying Israel or the State of Israel should be formed in Palestine, but it would take another 30 or 40 years for that to actually unfold. So why? Because life was good. On the right-hand side there is a photograph of the Jewish family in the 1920s into the early 1930s in Poland. That would have been a fairly expensive property in those days. 
Uh, there was wealth in these communities, as we know. Why would you leave that lifestyle and go to a lifestyle in the desert on the right-hand side of screen? And the facts speak for themselves. We can see on the two graphs presented there, those spikes on the bar chart are the, uh, represent the volume of Jewish immigrants moving to Palestine at any particular year. And you can see from 1933 to 1935, there's a massive spike. As Nazi Germany started to come into power and establish its ideology, immediately post World War II, and then again at the collapse of the Soviet Union. So we can see that there's world events and geopolitical events occurring in Europe which are prompting the Jewish people to move to the State of Israel. Without those events, it's unlikely that anyone would want to leave a life of luxury in Europe. And so after the war, many Jewish survivors tried to return to their pre-European homes. There was actually a protest with a Jewish deportee in France who tried to reclaim his property and immediately following the war, the defeat of Nazi Germany, anti-Semitism was still alive through the general communities of Europe, not just Germany. And there was a massive protest on April the 19th, 1945, in the streets of Paris saying, France for the French, not the returning Jew. And so hence that spike you saw on the chart, again, as Jews tried to go back and reclaim those that were survived, their property, they felt that they weren't welcome and they were told so. And it prompted them to move to the State of Israel, and many also went to the United States. So history and the statistics tell us why they moved, and what does the Bible say? Because the Bible, as we saw tonight in Jeremiah 16, has some messaging for us around this very issue of the Jewish history and what happened to them and why it happened. Just take a moment, though, to look at that photograph of that particular gentleman. And just think for a minute that the statements in the Bible that say that Israel are God's people, how does God feel looking at the impact of these events on his people? And we're going to see in a minute that God brought these events upon his people for a reason, but it wasn't without tears. Just as we look at that man and we see the trauma in his face. We looked at Jeremiah 16 tonight. We're not going to have time to look at it in detail or to necessarily read it. We'll refer to what's on the screen. But in verse 4, Jeremiah foretold the destruction of Israel by the Babylonians. So we go right back in Israel's history. What we see in the Holocaust isn't the first time that we see a nation rising up to be superior over the Jewish people. Jeremiah spoke of the Babylonians coming upon Israel back in 605 BC. Verse 6 and 7, people won't pity them or mourn them when these sorts of events happen. The world will close its eyes and shun 
the, uh, the plight of the people when that persecution is occurring. Verse 10 and 11, when they say, why all this evil? And here's the rationale. It is because the Jewish people have forsaken God and not kept his law. They walk after the imagination of their own hearts. See, God called them out to be his people and they refused to follow his law. And therefore, verse 13, God would cast them out of the land and he did that firstly with Babylon. The Lord Jesus Christ, when he came on the scene, he said there's going to be another time when what happened to the Jewish people under Babylon will happen again. And he spoke of a time when all these things that have occurred in the past to Jewish people will come upon this generation, he said, the generation he was speaking to in his day. And he said, behold, what is it that will come upon you? Well, your house will be left unto you desolate. That's what happened in Europe in World War II. But Jesus was talking of another time. And he went on to say that there shall not be one stone left upon another. We know these quotations referring to the temple in Jerusalem when he was alive. And he said, you will see a time when Jerusalem is going to be compassed about with armies and it's going to be desolated. And people, Jewish people will fall by the edge of the sword and they're going to be taken captive. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the time the Gentiles be fulfilled and the Jewish people will have access to Jerusalem again. And in AD 70, we know a nation rose up, the Romans, and persecuted the Jewish people and scattered them to all places of the earth. And Moses himself, years before any of these things happened, he spoke about the world's attitude towards the Jews. He said things are going to happen to the Jewish people which will make the Jewish people an astonishment, a proverb, a byword or a taunt among all nations. They'll be a puzzle. Why all this upon these people? And the Lord will scatter them. And he will scatter them among all people. And post AD 70, the Jewish people for 2,000 years or so never returned to the land. Of Israel. They were scattered throughout Europe. That's how they got to be in places like Poland and Germany and France and elsewhere throughout the earth as a consequence of that uprising by the Romans in AD 70. But notice what else Moses said in red text there. Among these nations to which you are scattered, you will not find any ease. Neither shall the sole of your foot have any rest. But the Lord shall give there thee a trembling heart and a failing of eyes and sorrow of mind. And thy life shall hang in doubt before thee, and thou shalt fear day and night, and thou shalt have none assurance of thy life. And we can pick up those words, surely, and apply them to what happened to the Jews in the Holocaust. Each one of those words describe how the Jewish people felt and still feel as we saw in that photograph of that elderly man a few minutes ago. And it wasn't just Moses, it was prophets that would come thereafter Moses in the Old Testament, in Jeremiah, in Isaiah, um, and other uh, Old Testament prophets. And you can see the repetitive nature of the language. 
They will be a reproach, a proverb, a taunt, a curse, said Jeremiah 24. This is a people robbed and spoiled. They are all of them snared in holes. They are hid in prison houses. And if you've seen footage of the Nazis when they went through the ghettos to pull out the Jews, to take them to the extermination camps, they fished them out of holes. They went through buildings. They raided those buildings and literally dragged them out into the street. And then Jeremiah 26, I'm going to make the city of Jerusalem a problem. I'm going to make the Jewish people a problem to all nations of the earth. And why would I do this, says God? Well, Isaiah 52, now therefore, what have I here that my people is taken away for naught? Are they persecuted for no reason by the Babylonians, the Romans, Nazi Germany? Are they persecuted for no reason? They that rule over them, make them to howl, to feel pain, saith the Lord. And my name continually every day is blasphemed. Therefore my people shall know my name and therefore they shall know that in that day I am the one that's in control. I am the one that speaks. And what Isaiah is telling us clearly, we know that this is all about to bring the Jews back to their God. And so in Jeremiah 16, there's a broad reference to two regatherings that as a consequence of the Babylonians, which is dealt with in that first part of the chapter that we read tonight, as a consequence of the raid of the Babylonians against the nation, Jeremiah prophesies in verse 14 to 16 that they will be regathered out of the nation, and they were. But there's a really interesting change of language in this little section that indicates something far more. In verse 15, he says, I'm going to regather them from the land of the north. Babylon was to the north of Israel. I'm going to regather them out of Babylon. But then he says, and also from all the lands whither I will drive them. So yes, speaking to the audience of Jeremiah's day, Babylon was the country that they knew about. That was their world. And Jeremiah was saying, that nation will come and take you captive and I will bring you back. But more broadly, should something like that happen again? And it did with respect to Nazi Germany. When Israel was scattered throughout all nations, which he references here, any land which God will drive them, he says, I will bring them back. And verse 16 is really quite pertinent for what we saw in World War II. And he says, flowing on from all the nations that I will drive them and I will bring them back to the land of their fathers. Behold, how will I do it? I will send for many fishers and they'll fish them and I'll send for hunters and they shall hunt them from every mountain, hill and out of the holes of the rocks. And we know when they came back from Babylon, they came back with the blessing of the new kingdom of the Persians. So a slightly different scenario on that occasion. But Jeremiah looks to the long-term future and he says there's going to come a time when I will regather them back into the land, the land of Israel, the land that I promised to Abraham, but it's going to be painful. I'm going to fish them and I'm going to hunt them. And so there was a promise, though, 
for those Jews who are prepared to listen, who are prepared to follow their God. Fear not, for I am with thee, said God. I will bring, I will say to the north, give up. To the south, keep not back. You know, whatever corner of the globe the Jews have been scattered, I will bring them back and I will watch over them to build and to plant. And post the Holocaust, people, the Jewish people returned to the land to build and to plant. And so we've seen a part fulfilment of some of these prophecies already. Isaiah 43, why? Why this circumstance that Israel might not just know their God, but something more? Well, this is where it starts to relate to us. Something more. Let all the nations be gathered together and let the people assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us former things? Because ye, the Jewish people, are my witnesses and my servant whom I have chosen. Before me there is no, uh, was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. I am the Lord God and you, the Jewish people. The circumstances that happened in the Holocaust you are my witnesses that I exist. And so for us, it becomes important to take from this event the message that God is real and that he's working with his people Israel. And they are evidence that he exists. Translation of Romans chapter 11. There is a secret truth, my friends, which I want you to know, for it will keep you from thinking how wise you are. It is the stubbornness of the people of Israel is not permanent, but will last only until the complete number of Gentiles comes to God. So Paul is saying here to the Roman believers that he has a purpose with the Gentiles, that he wants them to turn to God, non-Jewish people, to believe in God. And so the stubbornness of Israel to accept him as their God is not permanent. They reject the good news now, he says. The Jews are God's enemies today, but it's for your sake that you might look to the Jews and say, ah, God is real and he is bringing about his purpose. But because of God's choice to choose Abraham and his seed or his children, they are friends of God and he will bring them back to him. So let's finish off and summarise with two more slides. Why is this important to us? Why should we come together like we do and talk about this event? And why should we maybe be drawn to maybe not just indulge in a public holiday on the 26th of January, but to think a day ahead and to reflect on what the UN is going to do in, in remembering this horrific event. But to take it a step further and to apply its meaning as to why it happened to our salvation. You can see some of the points on the slide there. This event draws our attention to the plight of the Jewish people, how they've been scattered, how they've been persecuted, how they've been hunted and abused, and they miraculously managed to survive. And not only have they survived against all the odds, they have re-established their nation in the land promised to Abraham 2,000 years after they were removed by the Romans in AD 70. And the Holocaust proves that God is true to his word. For their unbelief, they would suffer at the hands of many nations 
and become a taunt, as we saw in those words of the prophet Jeremiah and Moses, but that God would not see them destroyed. So the Holocaust come, becomes a tangible event in the modern era that proves the Bible to be true. And in this, the Jews are God's witnesses. They witness to his existence. And consequently, we have good reason then to believe the word of God on our laps this evening. But anti-Semitism is on the rise again in Europe. Um, Merkel, when she went to Auschwitz on the 75th anniversary, she, she made comments that she was incredibly worried about the, the anti-Semitic movement that is re-emerging in Europe. CNN did a poll of more than 7,000 people across Europe, and you can see some of the statistics from that poll. But a couple of things to note, nearly one in four said Jews have too much influence in conflict and wars across the globe. Even with the COVID pandemic, we're hearing words of um, Jewish behaviour being involved and in influencing um, this uh, particular pandemic for the worst, to be able to sort of um, position themselves in, in power and control. A third of the supporters of Israel um, use accusations um, of anti-Semitism to shut down criticism of Israel, while only one in 10 said that was not true. A third said they just knew a little bit or nothing about the Holocaust, and a third of those interviews said that Israel uses the Holocaust to justify its actions, and only one in five disagreed. Surveys like this that are demonstrating the rise of anti-Semitism across Europe are a concern to current European leaders, at least. And there's a conversation that was going on between Merkel and a survivor who he travelled to Germany on the 75th anniversary. And in a calm speech, he talked about the Holocaust, how it nearly took his life. And he says that the situation is currently deteriorating in Europe again. And that's why, interesting choice of words, I speak as a witness, he says. Maybe he didn't know quite what he's witnessing, but according to scripture, that man was a witness to the reality of God. Here is our final thought for this evening. Some quotations, we only take a couple of them. But we know as Bible believers that God is in control and that he is bringing about a time when Israel, the Jewish people, will experience peace. That's not going to be before anti-Semitism increases again, as we have seen it just briefly happening already before our eyes, and it will culminate in another war. Zechariah 14 says, the day of the Lord comes, I will gather all nations against Israel. This time it'll be all nations to come against Israel, to come against Jerusalem for a war. And there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light, and the Lord will be king over all the earth on that day. The Lord will be one, and his name one. And there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. And on that day, after that war, Jerusalem shall dwell in security. Brothers, sisters and young people, we pray for that day to come soon.
Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at btf@cdvideo.org. If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.